The Ladder is brought to you by Squarespace, who make building a website to show off your creative work as easy as pie. Not only are the templates slick, the site's responsive, and the plugins incredibly powerful, but you can also easily hook up a custom domain, and to make sure that people take you seriously, get a professional email address rather than relying on your teenage Hotmail account. Don't underestimate the impact of that, folks. I've long been urging my students to get a proper email address, and it works. Here's one of them, Erin Blamere, who as part of Northern Art Collective Shy Bands has seen the results firsthand. Having a professional email address for our collective allows us to maximise efficiency for our communication. It means we can get things done a lot faster and people recognise our emails when they come into their inbox. It allows others to view us as professional creatives rather than students and it creates a sense of validity to the communication that we put out. Get your work online and get that email address hooked up today. Use the code INTERN at checkout for 10% off. Squarespace, build it beautiful. The Ladder is hosted by podcast.com, who along with hosting services have a purpose-built podcasting studio in central Manchester where you can try and make something half as good as this, or maybe even better. Good luck with that. Head to their site now for everything you need to know to start your own podcast. Find them at podcast.com. Welcome to The Ladder, a new podcast from Intern seeking to investigate and demystify the world of work in the creative industries. The metaphor career ladder can seem a little outdated these days as it's so hard to even get on the bottom rung. So we're reclaiming the ladder, ensuring that you can take your next step with the awareness and confidence needed to reach your goals. I'm Alec, your host, and in case you don't know Intern, we're a platform for and by the creative youth, empowering the next generation through content, support and training. We commission young writers and visual artists to tell stories about creative careers over on our site, but are excited to broaden the discussion to the world of audio so that we can really get stuck into the key issues facing aspiring makers, thinkers and doers. In the spirit of our written editorial, we want to understand topics through a broad range of perspectives and don't really have any interest in forcing an agenda on you. We aim to educate and inspire with the goal of helping you, our audience, to make informed decisions about your career and hopefully to stop some of you from working for free. This project has been in the pipeline for a while, and after being rejected three times by the Arts Council, thanks folks, we've decided to crack on regardless. I'm at our base camp in an unusually sunny Salford, where our crack team of Ben Ovington, Fuchsia Summerfield and Calvin Lands, students at the University of Salford's Audio for Media course, are desperately trying to turn me into a passable host. With their help, over the past few months, I've been investigating an issue that's always been a great concern and a major motivator to do what I do, the gender pay gap. I teach, usually once a week, at Leeds Arts University. At the start of this academic year, 5th of October to be precise, one of my students, Hannah Rocker, emailed me ahead of a session I was planning. It read, I keep hearing these rumours that women in the creative industry are a lot less likely to get the job. So I wanted to know from your inside perspective, is this definitely still an issue or is it just being over-amplified? It broke my heart because I felt the only way that I could reply was to say that as a woman entering the workforce, she was likely to face far more obstacles than her male counterparts. I couldn't really articulate the complexities of the issue much beyond that, so I set about learning as much as possible in order to give her a proper answer. 
Around a similar time, I'd heard through a friend that Ruby Goss, a brilliant young writer whom I briefly worked with in the summer of 2016, had finally left her job as an editor when one of her bosses told her in a wage negotiation that the reason she would not be paid the same as her male colleague was that she was a woman. Despite seeing the workplace in full flow during my time there and witnessing quite galling dickheadedness, this struck me as a sad new low. A couple of months ago, I commissioned Ruby to write about her experience for our website. The piece, Mind the Gap, has been one of our most popular ever and taught me a lot about the issues that women face in the workplace. Via a dodgy video call to Berlin, I caught up with Ruby recently to see how she felt about her time at that company, having documented it publicly. I had so many people contacting me after um, having read the article, whether it was old friends that I hadn't spoken to in the last 10 years, just sharing their own experiences of um, the gender pay gap in different industries like the teaching industry um, to um, some of the fantastic women that I actually interviewed for the piece like Cindy Gallup and Nat from Kerning the Gap. Um, and that kind of massively reinforced um, my belief in the what had happened to me because as a woman you read and you know just from conversations with other women about all the awful things that tend to happen to women. So something like, you know, not being paid as much as your male counterpart or having a shitty male boss that will, you know, speak awfully to you one-on-one or try and publicly humiliate you. It's not a life-threatening situation. But it wasn't just the issue of pay in Ruby's case. That was the tip of the iceberg in a toxic environment for female staff. That's why I ultimately left. It was just a sequence of events that I was totally not comfortable with. And I think the main thing was seeing um, my female co-workers being sort of publicly shamed in front of the office. And there was many instances where I just watched it and I didn't intervene. And that to me is something that still upsets me so much today that I didn't speak up because I was afraid of how a man would treat me. That was a real turning point for me where I thought, I can't work in a space where this is normal. Well, mine was, I think, a kind of extreme case in the sense that I think if you walked into that workplace as an outsider, you could see very obviously the different ways that men and women were treated. And I think in other workplaces, perhaps it's more insidious. Extreme it was, but these kind of instances are being reported more and more. Many times they're situated in the creative industries, with startups a good place to find male bosses drunk on power. I think that's the dangerous thing about reputable, you know, seemingly great places to work, especially creative places, is that they attract really fantastic people because they see from the outside that great work happens here. Um, The great work comes from the great people that are employed there. Um, And sadly, they keep coming because they want a chance too. For Ruby and many others like her, all that glitters is not gold. The question for young women when their bid to launch a career with a notable brand turns sour is... How much is this really worth on my CV? I was curious to see if those in more senior roles still experience different treatment. They don't get more senior, in my address book at least, than Pip Jameson, founder of fast-growing startup The Dots. Sadly, she still faces all manner of gender stereotypes. You know, while I was at university, I, you know, I had just very brilliant friends who it, our genders didn't mean anything. And then as I've sort of gone into my career and gone more senior in the career, I have seen that creeping in more and more. Most recently with raising, so we were raising funding for the business. Um, I learned the hard way that I had to go to investment pitches with a male colleague. Um, if I didn't, I wasn't taken seriously. I'd still do the pitch. I'd still do it, you know, exactly how it was. Um, there were other times where... I was being vetted by a 
by an investor and they'd actually just talked to that male colleague, even though my poor COO, John, was constantly saying, you know, Pip's the CEO. Um, and um, they would just look straight at John and not at me. Not content with pretending that she's not in the room, Pip's noticed that many investors have a habit of placing overwhelming value in intrinsically male and perhaps counterintuitive qualities, leaving women locked out for seemingly being more open, adaptable and, frankly, better problem solvers. Only 3% of venture capital money goes to female founders, sole female founders. More goes to co-founders. So there is this movement now in the venture capitalist um, uh, community where they are trying to change things. And I started actually um, reverse mentoring a number of them, which has been a really rewarding process. And so, for example, I found out that one of the key criteria they look for in founders is that they're what they call a street fighter. And that means in a, in a, um, when you're doing a pitch, they'll say to you, they'll come up with an idea for the dots and it'll be really tangential to what you're actually doing. And what they're looking for someone who's a street fighter who literally dismisses out of hand and said, no, my way's the right way. However, as women, we tend not to do that. We're much more collaborative. We'll tend to take on people's ideas, we'll digest them, and then we'll discuss them through, and then we'll make a decision. And we're always decisive when we make a decision, but we'd rather see it here, both sides of the story. And I think that makes us brilliant leaders. As co-founder of the pop-up agency, Abraham Asifau travels the world helping brands to break down the bureaucratic structures that hold them back from unleashing their creative potential. And for him, at the top level, things are going to have to change. People in that level, that room, are not used to seeing people like Pip. That is one, female, two, very dynamic and energetic, very powerful person, just stirs up their, you know, point of view of like what they know. And this is like, this is not the norm. What is this? This is something different. This has changed. What now? Um, you know, fast forward a couple of years, we will definitely see more Pip-S kind of individual than that in our levels. In April, the UK government made it a legal requirement for employers of over 250 staff to submit and publicly publish gender pay gap statistics. It's a move that's been met with mixed reviews. When I first heard about it, it struck me as an important first step. But the more I researched, the more critique I found surrounding the reporting, particularly with the limits of the data itself. The Institute of Economic Affairs seemed keen to challenge the data set, so I spoke to their digital officer, Madeline Grant, to find out why. Ordinarily, we would try, our work would try and focus on shifting the policy debate. But recently, there's been a spate of just bad data, bad reports, bad statistics that have been thrown out there. So we've actually had to spend quite a lot of time debunking the April Pay Day campaign. Um, but I think it's a necessary thing that needs to be done. If you are just looking at the gender pay gap, i.e. taking all men and women in Britain and comparing exactly what I, I believe the latest figure is something like, uh, and we're talking mean here, so the, the average, um, it's just under 20%. If you take the median, which I think is more accurate, because if you're looking at the mean comparison, then you're including um, often very high earners at the top that will tend to skew the data up and um, give you an un unrepresentative. It drills down into about 9%. Um, that's that's taking into account everything. But of course, that doesn't factor in things like the age of the employee, the experience, uh, their education level, uh, the hours that they've worked in a given day at work, um, and whether they have may have taken time out of the workforce to care for children. Um, and these are really important things that I think should be controlled for, because otherwise, 
comparing like for like and also giving the British public a false impression and potentially leading them to believe that men and women, uh, women are be- being paid less for doing the same work, which is just inaccurate. Yeah, I mean, that's that was one of the things that really struck me in the kind of IEA's response, as I discovered it, that one of the accusations, I hope you'll don't mind me using that word, I couldn't find a better one, um, is of the government approach is that it tries to conflate the gender pay gap with pay inequality, which is illegal, isn't it? You can't pay someone less to do the same job with the same qualifications on the basis of their gender. It's been, what, illegal since the 70s? The Equal Pay Act came in in 1970. So, yeah, it's been it's been illegal for <laughs> coming up for 50 years. There are undoubtedly cases where gender-based discrimination does take place. But I, I think the, the real salient point here is that that is already illegal under existing law. And arguably the solution to that when it occurs is to better apply existing law um, and to seek redress through employment tribunals than it is to doing other other forms of intervention that may create bad incentives for employers and may distort the market even further. Playgout reporting isn't new to Shout Out Network founder and host of one of my favourite podcasts, Wannabe, Imriel Morgan, who has some concerns about how companies will respond to the measures. For like the last five, how long have I been in tech? My gosh. Yeah, easily the last five years, uh, or three to five years. Um, And they report on it freely, knowing how abysmal (laughs) their stats are, and they never improve. It's almost like this badge of honour to say, no, we're reporting on it, we're doing our part, but actually we're going to do loads of events, we're going to have loads of panels, we're going to find all of the black and brown people and the women to sit on these panels and we're still not going to hire them. Um, so, yeah, like, I think the reporting is something that they can get in the habit of. What I'm mindful of is that Silicon Valley effect, though, of, yeah, we're reporting it, but we're not ashamed. It's kind of like, well, Apple's really bad, so... It's cool that Google's bad, and so is, like, I don't want to call any other names, but I just know that those ones were really bad. Um, So, yeah, it kind of then became normalised, and I think that's the danger of when you kind of make the reporting widespread, like, oh, everyone's really bad at this, so we don't need to feel bad that ours is just as bad, because we're not as bad as that company, we're not as bad as this company, we're cool, actually, we've got, like, three people. Um, So, yeah, I think that's really the danger of the reporting, but I think the reporting is necessary so that we can actually look at that, engage in that conversation and hold people to account because if we don't know it, um, I think as people of colour, as women in industry, we're acutely aware and more aware of it than anyone else. Um, But yeah, at least then if it's presented, we can back that up, we can back up those assertions because the thing with marginalised backgrounds is that people don't tend to believe us when we say things anyway. So at least if the statistics back it up, there's there's some grounding to what we're saying and we can campaign a little bit harder um, and push for that a little bit more. Um, and even if that results in something that's similar to affirmative action, which gets a lot of flack and a lot of heat, even though the single biggest beneficiaries of affirmative action programmes tend to be white women, um, it still means that there's a concerted effort in pushing people qualified for the positions through to the job and then also paying them is the is a whole next step to that so yeah I think there's a lot of work to be done I don't know quite where the starting point is but I think for reporting coming from the company's end is definitely where I would look at starting for sure 
The kind of action that companies may feel pressured to take in order to improve their pay gap statistics is another point of concern for Madeline, with whom I'd been discussing EasyJet. Part of the problem with these measures is that it might be easy jet to hire fewer women in cabin crew staff in order to make their figures, to adopt their figures to look better. It might be for them to start contracting out uh, various functions that are currently more performed by women so that they don't show up in the figures. You know, these are the, this is not just harm, harmless reporting. It could have very real, very negative implications. I can appreciate Madeline's point, cynical as I am. I don't really think that big companies need much prompting to cut corners and perhaps the nature of the reporting will encourage board-level actions that will negatively impact prospects for women in a range of industries. One industry doing more than most to speak out about and break down the patriarchal structure that it's built on is the media industry, and so my reporting brought me to Manchester Student Union to meet a brilliant young woman who proposes a far more holistic and fundamental change. My name is Kirstia Mahney. Um, I have a couple of different job titles here so I'm the editor-in-chief of the Mancunian which is the University of Manchester student newspaper. Um, I'm the head of the Manchester Media Group which is the student media wing of the Students' Union and I'm also the chair of the Women in Media Conference this year. Um, So I think it has a huge impact. I think if if you aren't seeing people that look and sound like you and have the same experiences as you you know, on the news or in radio documentaries, um, you're not going to think that they're for you. You may enjoy consuming them, even if they don't, you know, tell stories that fully represent you. You might not ever think that it was something that you could get involved with yourself. It's not until you see sort of people of colour in the newsroom, women in the newsroom, working class people in the newsroom, that you start to think, like, actually, this is a place where I belong to. Um, and And that's why we need more diversity in those places, if anything, just to encourage sort of a lot of talent that up until now has probably gone to waste. And that's all tied into the recruitment process as well. If you have women in those senior positions dealing with that recruitment processes, they will be able to make those applications more sort of welcoming to women so yeah it's 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 extremely important to have to have more representation at the top in order to make sure it happens at all levels throughout any company i think there are some genuine issues with some of the reporting around this i think there has been the occasional conflation between the two issues and i think programs such as like victoria derbyshire do a really good job of sort of separating the two and explaining why they're different i think there was some reporting in the guardian that kind of showed some of the data and showed it in a way that said like this is when women stop getting paid and I think that is quite that's an irresponsible representation of what's actually happening what is actually shown by this data is as you say there are far more men in higher paid positions than there are women so then the issue there is how do we get women into those higher paid positions and so there's there's arguments for sort of quotas and positive discrimination which people have problems with for various different reasons and one of them is well I want to pick the best candidate based on their skills rather than you know their gender or their colour or their sexuality or their social class the point there is that it's patronising to say that since the dawn of time it's only ever been white men that have been suitable for those positions and that those are the only people that have ever had the skills or the expertise or the you know the tenacity to to do those roles well um the the crux of the issue for me is as i touched on before 
is making people feel like those positions are for them. Um, and that is the responsibility of the company. That's not the responsibility of the person. They have been conditioned to feel that they are not welcome in that company or at that level of seniority. So it is it's the responsibility of every company to make it abundantly clear that women are more than capable of doing those jobs and should be applying for them and should be going for those promotions and should be sort of like trying to go up the ladder in that way. I could keep cutting you back and forth between Madeline and Kirsty's differing stances regarding the responsibility of making these jobs available, attractive or even visible, but I'd like you to make your own mind up on that issue. Do you think businesses should invest in recalibrating the makeup of workforces that are typically male-dominated? Or does that just create a whole new problem? We'll revisit this later on, but for now, let's take a look at things on a personal level. Ellen Ling is a creative at Love, an agency in Manchester, and working daily in an industry, advertising, that doesn't have a great reputation for gender equality, she's used to dealing with no small amount of unconscious bias from colleagues and contemporaries. If you're oppressed, you are painfully aware that you're oppressed, and you're probably painfully aware of the solution to that. History kind of tells us that. Um, if you are not one of the oppressed, or you know, you're actually an oppressor, that doesn't necessarily mean you're in a malicious position where you're holding people back, but you're not necessarily aware of the limitations that other people face or of the imbalance. Um, and it's how do you get that on your radar because it doesn't immediately affect you. So for me, the issue comes down to two things. The first is making everyone aware that more equal opportunities and a more diverse industry benefits everyone. It's not just something that benefits those who've been held back or those that deserve better opportunities and maybe haven't had those opportunities in the past. It's something that is going to benefit everyone um, because we are better when we're surrounded by different people. The second is how do you make people aware, get it on their radar if they're not one of those people that are held back or have necessarily been held back. Because if you aren't a victim of the system and you're actually benefiting from it, it's very, it can be very difficult to make those people activists for other people's cause. I think that comes down to empathy and it comes down to um, doing the right thing and not doing the thing that benefits you. Drumming up that awareness in a professional environment, particularly if you're part of the oppressed group, must be a really tough thing to do. I wouldn't know, of course, as I've always had it easy as a white male. Understandably, solidarity is typically easier to find outside of the workplace, and some brilliant all-female platforms and networks, like Galdem and She Says, are helping to empower women around the world. For Ellen, though, there's a limit to the power of overly exclusive groups when it comes to affecting change. There's been a huge surge in girl gang mentality and kind of panel discussions and lots of um, kind of female empowerment nights where you celebrate the women of the industry and talk about women's issues, which on the one hand is an incredibly empowering um, trend to see. It creates a safe space for everyone to discuss the issues and to feel encouraged by their peers. And I know from conversations I've had with sort of colleagues and peers, um, and just friends that that creates um, a really safe environment to discuss those things and people who maybe aren't as confident to have those conversations on a bigger scale yet. That's sort of a, a big step in being able to understand the issues and how you might raise them or process your experiences of them. The downside of them, I think, is it creates a really safe space in the negative sense of an echo chamber where you're preaching to the converted um, 
a lot of nights I've been to have been exclusively for women, so they've actively um, excluded men from the conversation, which, to me, I think, what's the point in that? Because we need to raise these issues with everyone in the industry, and the reality is that men and women are in this industry, and, you know, men still are predominantly in a position of power, so we have to help them to help us, and I think we don't do that by excluding them from the conversation. Whilst I think those kind of nights and events and those initiatives are incredibly positive and I'd rather see them happening than not see them happening, I think we have to be careful that we don't get complacent and think that doing those is enough. It seems fair to say that they won't be enough. The more people I've spoken to throughout this investigation, the more the issue seems to sprawl. Ruby described the bias as insidious and that's proving to be an accurate assessment. In search of some clarity, or at least some insight into the roots of gender equality, I visited Melanie Levick-Parkin, senior lecturer in visual communication at Sheffield Hallam University, to get her take. Melanie had just submitted a PhD thesis entitled How Women Make when I met her, and as such, should probably now be referred to as Dr Mel. I was eager to unpick some of the fundamental issues at play here, but first of all, we talked about her experiences of gender discrimination in the professional sphere. When I left university, I worked in advertising and at that point in time, even though I think I always considered myself as being quite wary of any disadvantage that I might have because I was a woman, there was also an attitude of, you know, I can do anything I want and I can achieve and I just have to work hard. And so I kind of went out with that attitude and, you know, I got a job, I was teamed up with a copywriter, we were doing quite well, but then I got pregnant and was off for, I think it was five months. And when I came back, he had been promoted, whereas I hadn't, I was teamed up with someone who's quite, um, was a lot less experienced than I was. And also then I found out that there was already a pay gap between me and my copywriter, who was male. And when I brought that up, I was told, you know, you can't compare it because he's doing a different job. But if you remember that those people, you know, we were teamed up, so mm. we spent the majority of our time together. I think it's also that thing that you always individualize these things. Uh, you do, I think as a woman, maybe you do that as a man as well, that you think maybe I haven't done enough. Maybe I didn't, maybe I'm not doing the kind of work, you know. And at that point in time, I don't think it affected me so much, but then those little signals that keep coming your way ultimately you start kind of being in a different position mm. than when you first go out and you go oh, right you know I can I can do this just as well as a man can. Diane Foster talks about um and lean out I don't know if you've mm. come across that that women you know read the social signals sent to them throughout education growing up and they make rational decisions based on that realistic decisions you know as to how can I live and how can I negotiate where my place is within this um, and I do think that most of the creatives that I educated the women did not feel like they would fit in particularly well in the creative departments Maybe that's changed by now, but, you know, even up to as recent as probably five years or so, I was still sending, we were still sending um, primarily male teams out into the creative departments. 
partly because it's kind of opening up recent wounds more so for women and that these are like you say these little signals that you've been aware of all along and people might have been telling you oh no it's you know you just have to be confident and you have to present yourself in this way and you have to go and ask for more money and things like that and then the first few times you've maybe got less tolerance then because you kind of know what's coming and when it inevitably does you're more likely to and I think quite rightly throw in the towel and go fuck this yeah I don't necessarily think it's helpful and I think some of the things I've told my female students in the past has, has not been helpful because really I've perpetuated the myth that you only have to try a bit harder and still a bit harder and still a bit harder. And I do believe that's a myth. And I also believe that's untenable in the long run. Mm-hmm. So, and you were talking about the glass ceiling earlier and breaking through it. I don't see it as a glass th- ceiling that can be broken through. I see it as a morass at the top that we have to fight our way through. And really it starts from quite a young age. And I think what happens is you run out of energy because it's like fighting your way through something that's sticky, that's, you know, it's like a gunk off. Uh, and, and you have no sense of when you might come up for air. Um, and I think at some point, you know, you, you do run out of energy. And also then, as your life experience grows, you start making different decisions. And you start thinking about other things you might want to, how you might want to live. Uh, And funnily enough, that's actually one of the things in my thesis that I reflected on. I actually thought, to some extent, that holds great potential as well. It's Mm -hmm. not just kind of, you know, what are we asking to have equal participation in? Is it worth being equal in that? Sheila Rowbotham in the 1970s, she did a lot of research on women, particularly in industry and stuff. And a lot of the stuff she found was that women were seen as unreliable workers within the capitalist system because if they were needed as carers for their children, family, community, they would prioritise that labour instead of the wage labour. Now, for the system, that obviously, you will be punished for that, Mm. yeah? Because basically, you're going to the system, no, there are things that are more important than you at this Mm. point in time, and I will pay the price for that in a different way, and I will prioritise my other labour. Obviously, this actually takes us to the root, how labour is valued within our society, and what labour we attach value to and wage labor and how much we pay for it. That goes from the idea of uh, care work not being paid, which traditionally was female work, to other labor that's very, very highly valued, which was traditionally more male-oriented. But it's so complex and it's so interlinked. But I do think that the devaluing of female labor is ultimately... A misvaluing of all the labour that goes into society anyway. Mm. Um, yeah, I think there's a very fundamental flaw in how our communities have been built around those value constructs. I believe there should be full participation of women in the public uh, space and full participation of men in the private space.
We've come a long way since Hannah's email popped into my inbox, and as much as we've learned about the scale of the issue, we've not yet set about offering you any solutions, but fear not. In our next episode, we'll start to explore some of the ways that the pay gap and gender discrimination can effectively be tackled on an individual level, whether you're just starting out or if you're in a position of influence at work. If you're a business owner, we'll have some insight into how to build an inclusive company and why that's good business. And we'll also look at policy level interventions to give you a clearer idea of what the bigger picture is. I hope this programme's been informative and that you're feeling a little more clued in. We're going to put plenty of links in the episode information so that you can read more and easily start your own conversations. We'd love to hear your feedback, so get in touch on Twitter. Our handle is thisisintern, or you can tweet to me at Alec Dudson. The Ladder was recorded and mastered at University of Salford and is edited and produced by Ben Ovington, Fuchsia Summerfield and Calvin Lands. Our soundtrack is by Calvin Lands. Thanks to Simon Connor for bringing us together and to the University of Salford for collaborating with us. These episodes are dedicated to my grandma and Auntie Jess, who from a very early age taught me that there's no difference between women and men when they weren't blowing raspberries on my tummy, that is. <laughs>